Welcome to the Red Dice Diaries. This podcast is a rambling journey through the wonderful world of RPGs from the viewpoint of a long-time GM and player. The music at the start of this podcast was Nightmare by Alexander Nakarada and is used under Creative Commons license. This is John from Red Dice Diaries with Lloyd and Johannes. And for this podcast episode, we're going to be attempting to answer all of the RPG Day 2018 questions because we because we hate ourselves that much. We decided to cram them all into a podcast entry. You know, it's that, it, it's that pleasure pain thing. I mean, Lloyd's obviously delirious, still suffering from jet lag. I mean, just come back from Gen Con. Yeah, Johannes is in a different time zone. I've just got back from work, and we're like, yeah, what? Well, let's punish ourselves a bit more by going through these 31 questions. For anyone who doesn't know, by the way, this is the fifth year of RPG a day. It was started by Autocratic, who I'll put a link to his blog in the description of this uh, podcast. Effectively posts a list with a question for each day of the month of August. The idea being you make a video or whatever, answering that question as far as you're concerned. But for some reason, because we like we love the challenge, we love we love the the endurance trial. We're going to try and like, blast through them all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to quick fire until we get to Lloyd. Rapid fire through these RPGNA questions. Okay, so all of week's one's questions, the first five questions, are based around the idea of what. So question one, guys, what do you love about RPGs? Lloyd, come on, take it away. It's pretty easy. I love RPGs because I meet white people. I mean, sorry, let me start again. I love RPGs because I liked, because it's one way I love to socialize. There's something about meeting someone and seeing them pretend to be someone else, that, that kind of like weird acting thing they put on, that really helps you get to know someone a bit better. You also get to see the way they view themselves and the way that they don't normally think they say themselves are, because they're trying to play a character. But everyone has a piece of themselves within it. And it kind of helps you really get to know someone a little bit better. It's really weird. It's like, it's like team building, but not really. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. I mean, one of the things yeah. I, I quite like is, as you say, with people pretending to be something they're not, it sort of all puts you all on like a level footing because it doesn't do it matter what sort of like race, social class, whatever you come from. You're all in that same place of trying to pretend to be someone else when you actually start doing an RPG. So I think it's one of the few sort of social settings that sort of starts you all off on the same level. And like you say, it, it does help you get to know people. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That was, that was deep shit. We don't miss a belt, boy. I'll give you a date. That date? Month of August? Okay. So, anyone else got anything to say on what do you love about RPGs? There's, there's got to be a bit more than this, because we all put like far too much time into RPGs. Lloyd even, Lloyd even works on RPGs. I draw... Well, I, I, have, I have a million things to say, but we have 31 questions to answer yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, okay, all right, all right, guys, we'll, we'll move on to the second question, if you like. No, no, I'll, oh, I'll oh. still go for the yeah, go on. first one. So, so, I was thinking about this earlier today, and I couldn't really, like, nail down, a, a, like, a proper answer, because the love is sort of, like, spread around the questions here, right? Because there's, there's yeah. a lot of different aspects to it, like you said, but uh, I think one of the, the things that really appealed to me is it's sort of... The same thing as when you read a book, let's say fiction. So you get to experience and sort of travel to all of these different stories and, and places. Uh, and that's 
especially in RPGs, because you get to sort of make the the story for yourself. Uh, I think that's that's one of the best things for me, at least in RPGs. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to link to that, I mean, I think one of the one of the things I like now, sort of as I'm running and playing RPGs, is one of the things that really used to like fuck me off when I first started playing RPGs. And I and I've said this before when I've been playing games with yourself, Johannes. It's that bit when, like, as the GM, the player characters turn around and do something entirely unexpected, mm-hmm. and it's like. Now, because I've got a bit more experience... Well, when I first started, that used to like, infuriate the shit out of me. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I've yeah. planned all this adventure and I've brought all these maps and the players are ruining my story. Yeah, just take your notes into the trash. That's it. Flip the table. You know how it goes, but it's like, now I've, I've, I've got that experience with, like, GMing. And it gets to that point where the players turn around and they do something unexpected. You can just go, all right, well, that's okay. Yeah. That's, that, that's yeah. great. Let's run with it. Yeah. And I, f- I find it far more entertaining now because if, if everything's scripted, I already know what's going to happen. Whereas, a- a- as we've sort of seen in recent sessions, when people like do crazy, unexpected things, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, well, this takes the story off in an entirely new direction that I hadn't considered. And it makes it interesting and exciting for me as the GM. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, question two. What do you look for in an RPG? So, Johannes, what do you look for in an RPG? Uh, again, like you could answer uh, like a thousand different answers to this, but uh, in an RPG, I want to have a compelling theme uh, that is supported by design that is actually crafted for that thing. So uh, a strong, compelling theme, which is obviously going to be subjective to, uh, to everyone who plays these games, uh, but I, I want to have the, the design of the game support and propel that theme forward when you play. Cool. How about yourself, Lloyd? What do you look for in an RPG? I look for a game that's mechanics and settings help me tell the stories I want to tell. I don't always use settings, but I use a lot of mechanics. And the way I tell stories, the first thing I don't look at a game is, can this game tell the stories the way I tell stories, and can we work together? For example, pretty much in every single game I play, the first thing I do is, how would this game do me getting on top of one carriage, and um, I was moving, and jumping off that carriage to another carriage that is moving. What are the mechanics for that? And from there, I can tell where the game is good. If it's like, if it's like two rows, I'm like, oh, that's not bad. If it's like 20 rows, I'm like, really? No, I'm out. Hey, well, at, like, at least we know how it works in Legends of Sherwood, man, because I did it in your game. Yeah, pretty much, yeah, down, down like that. That's usually, the, that's like my normal go-to. I look at the mechanics and go, can these mechanics support the kind of game I want to play? Because at the end of the day, setting doesn't really matter. You can play the setting in anything. But I want to know if the mechanics support my play style before I do anything else. That's what I look for in the game. I mean, I think in terms of mechanics for myself, I look for a set of mechanics that has sort of has me covered for the majority of situations, but isn't so extensive that I feel like every little thing that happens, I've got to sort of look up like a unique subsystem for it. I mean, for instance, the the, the sort of the, the way I judge systems, rather like you were talking about, Lloyd, with your idea of like what happens if you, you're on a cart and you jump off it, the way I always look at them is I think, right, okay, so what happens if a player just like suggests something entirely random? H- how would I handle that in the mechanics? 
and if it, if a system's got like a sort of fallback mechanic effectively so like um in D, &D you can always have them make an attribute test or a saving throw for like pretty much anything with some modifiers and various other games have got similar sort of fallback mechanics that you can use i like that i don't like games where i'm like all right okay they've um it's the second Thursday of the month, and they're they're wearing one sock, and they're they're trying to run through the streets with a, a one-eyed whippet at their heels. And I'm like, oh shit! I best look at the specific rules up for that. So it, you're talking about the uh, lamentation of the game, there, I think. Well, well, that that, that is part of the reason why I, I like OSR games, but it's also why I like Fate because they're very sort of simple rules, but they pretty much allow me to like cover whatever I want. And they also have the benefits of, because they're simple, if I do want to change a little bit or tweak a little bit, I've not got to worry about loads of interlocking different roles that I can potentially wreck without even considering it. Mm -hmm. Okay, anyone else? Can I anything for question two? I don't think so, no. Yeah, I think we're good. Okay, so question three, which originally when I looked at this, I thought it said what gives a game slaying power, but it's actually what gives a game staying power. Can we answer that question instead? Let's answer both of them. Fuck it. Let's, t let's yeah. do a twofer. Yeah. Okay, so slay slaying power. Lloyd, go. A game, what gives games slaying power is incredibly fun writing that jumps out at me and makes me basically go, yeah! If I read a book and I'm like, oh, shoot, this is incredibly funny. You know what book I read last that gave me that feeling? It was Masks. You open it up. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, it's good, it's great. And you open page one, and there's the beacon on the freaking, like, first real full screen page just chilling out. I'm like, I'm dead. I just died. This game just killed me. It's the greatest game ever. I'm done. I'm sold. Boom. Done. Now, I, agree I agree with you about Masks, man. Because obviously I was, like, loving it already, like, reading through it. And then as soon as I got to, like, the Nova page, it was just, like, the game just went, oh, you thought that was good, and then just, like, turned the dial up a little bit more. What do you think about it now? So yeah, I think the, the sort of... Um, I haven't read Masks through, like, page for page. But uh, the, um, uh, the authorial voice in, especially, like, PBDA games is very appealing to me as well uh, and i know that there's a subset of people who for example let's say apocalypse world they find the language there to be sort of like the, it distracts them somehow but i found it to be very thematic and enjoyed that yeah i mean f for me i mean i i think one of the things that gives the game staying power is right i say it's got to be a concept and mechanics sort of working together that immediately capture my imagination. If I'm reading through a book and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to run a campaign of this. Oh, I can't, oh maybe I can, I can fit a one shot in. I, 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 I've got, I've got time. I've got space. I can fit, I can fit a one shot in somewhere. Then it's a good sign for the game. I'll probably come back to. It. I mean, and I mean, you've played like a fair bit of Tremulous together, yeah, mm -hmm. and that's another game where, as soon as I started reading it, I was like, yeah. I love all these toolkits. I can see all loads of different possibilities. Um, great for one shots. I'd also love to try like, running a campaign of it, which I've not done. I know you have, but mm -hmm. it, immediately, I mean, I'm a big fan of sort of like the Cthulhu Mythos anyway. But reading that, it immediately sort of grabbed me, and I was like, yeah, I want to run this game. Yeah, and as for Tremulous especially, uh, like there's obviously again like staying power. Loads of things could do that. Um, for Terminus, it's 
at least for my part, uh, I had the, the campaign that I played uh, with dozens of sessions and uh, a lot of that was sort of the, it turned into the sort of like traditional campaign where I make some shit up and then we play. Um, but it started from, as a result of the, the generation tools in the book. And that is like, as you know, we've been playing Tremulous. That gives you dozens of at least one shots that you could play. Uh, and I think with the added playsets for Tremulous, you just you could just play like one shots of Tremulous forever and like have the game generate you premises that are always different. So that's that's one type of like staying power. Then uh, I have to say, Vampire the Masquerade has some staying power in my mind because it it is a fucking obsession. <laughs> but that's uh, that's in large part due to the, the nostalgia that I have because uh, it, it was one of my early loves in, in RPGs. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think nostalgia does play a part in it. I mean, you only need to look at people who've like got ancient, like old systems. Who like still love them to bits because it's like the system they grew up with. I mean, mm -hmm. e even like things like Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, even though that's far crunchier than like the typical systems I go for, because it's like one of the first role-playing games I played. I've still got a great a great deal of love and fond memories tied up in the sort of earlier versions of that system. And I I bought the like the giant like mammoth tome that Zweihander purely because mm -hmm. I was like right it's. It's a guy who was obviously a huge fan of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, doing like his own thing with it in the same way as like OSR's done with D&D &D and whatever. And I was like, yeah, I, I love that game as well. I'm going to buy that book. Don't know if I'll run it, but I, I love the game so much and it's got such fond memories for me. And likewise with Vampire, as you're saying. Yeah. And then to like bonus points for Zweihander, it has actual slaying power as well. Like you could slay someone with that book. Oh, but please, man, slaying power. Talk to me about Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Wait. I'm sorry, guys. Are y'all talking about City of Mist? Because I'm pretty sure I killed a man with that book. <laughs> I'm oh, sure someone died. I, 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 I would have done, man, but like I didn't make it through like the overly long like introduction, man. I, I was talking about the weight. It's huge. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but it's, not, it's not that huge, though, Lloyd. Okay, it's not bigger than Zweihander, fine. Zweihander wins the size of one. Yeah, it's Einhander. That's it, man. <laughs> it, it, it's like you best believe you're not going to lift it one-hander. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, there's a, a lot of different things that can be, that can appeal to a game. There's like nostalgia, there's mechanics, there's, there's, very, there's how excited it gets you about the game. And I think... The, the best sort of games have a combination of those different elements in it. So it's like if I get a game and it's got like, I'm not bothered about the background, the book's maybe not that good, but it's got like an interesting mechanic. I may like steal it for another game, but I probably won't go back to that specific game. Whereas if it's got like one or two, or maybe even all three of these sort of things we're talking about, I'm more likely to go back and go, yeah, I actually want to run that particular game. I... I fall in love with games. I meet, I meet a game and it does everything I want. Mechanics I like, a world I like, a setting I like, everything I like, I fall in love. And it's never really easy to tell what it is that makes me fall in love with a game. Because a lot of things I want to see in a game, and not every game has the same thing, but like Mouse Guard, I will always love Mouse Guard. 
I mean, usually people think, well, Lloyd, that game is way too complicated for you. You, know, you like you like more lighter games. Mm -hmm. but to be honest, yeah. Mouse Guard to me is exactly what I want. It's got it's got a whole bunch of cool mechanical things you can do. It's got like a card mechanic for doing things. Cards. It's got like a skill gaining mechanic. It's got like a wise mechanic, and all these things added together just makes it perfect. And I love it. And once you love a game that just fits for you in that beautiful, wonderful jigsaw in your head, there's nothing that can change that. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point as well. About like another thing that you've brought to mind by talking about Mouse Guard, because I played in the game that you ran for us. Games where they let you play sort of, I suppose, unique characters. And I don't mean in terms of like, oh, I'm playing some random class or I've got some like ridiculous powers. So games that like give you ideas for characters that you might not have otherwise played. Like in the, the Mouse Guard game you ran for us, where I was basically just playing like a fat baker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. love that because that's not a character I would have thought of but I was just like yeah love it and the the recent um, tremulous game Johannes yeah, when I was basically playing like a a, a Miss Marple style like psychic again not, not a character I would have thought of unless I'd seen it on the playbook but I love the fact the game was like oh here's something you may not have considered and sort of put that idea in my head yeah uh, like this reminded me of that when we played um the Thousand Thrones campaign somewhat with uh, Jason in Warhammer. Uh, oh, and you had the sort of like faux Italian barber guy. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, my, my um, Italian barber. Yeah, that's, that's some of the, like, the gems that sort of like bubble up uh, unexpectedly. <laughs> it's one of the things I like as well is because I, I try and when I'm making a character, I'll often like refer back to like uh, interesting like side characters I've seen in films. So for for the Italian barber we're talking about, it was um, Sasha Baron Cohen in um, Sweeney Todd, where he does the nice. sort of, he does the guy who's got like the faux Italian accent, but he's not actually Italian. He's just like a con man. So I was trying to sort of like channel a bit of that. But games that sort of make me think, like, oh yeah, I can use this like random concept I've like seen somewhere, and especially for one shots. So I'm like, oh, I might not play this in a campaign, like. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the Miss Marple psychic. I don't know if I'd have played that in a campaign, but for a one shot, I'm like, yeah, sure, let's go for it. Even if I decide, like, oh, this character's not for me, uh, at most I'm playing it for like a few hours and you just like play the arse out of it, yeah. and, then, and then that's it. You know, I think this is a very good time for us to jump into the next question, which yeah. is the most memorable NPC. Indeed, no. PCs we like. I'm going to rely on you guys mainly for this because my memory is shocking, as you both know. So. <laughs> I'll hand over to you guys for this. Do you want okay. to go live? I, I got one. So yeah. I ran a game, uh, uh, Contingency, last year. And the PCs had just, it was John Carter game, they just infiltrated like Elysium. They wanted to figure out where to go. So they were like, okay, let's just kidnap a soldier and run me start telling her. And I was like, okay, cool, kidnap a soldier. And I thought about it a bit more. I was like, well, I'm kind of only got like two hours to go in this game. I really can't be dealing with like a torture scene. Okay, so they kind of said, I'm like, oh, hi, oh, princess. Oh, I'll help you. And he's like, no, I'll help you guys out. And they're like, wait, what? Like, yeah, he's, he's really friendly. He helps you guys out. He's like, I don't really have time for the torture scene. So he's just a really nice guy. That wants, you're just really lucky with that. And his name was Garrow. And as the plot went on, he became one of the most helpful characters throughout. Because basically just give him a hand and if they want anything done outside of the scene. And it reached a point where the party were captured, one of them had escaped, Garrow was alone, and they, the party member gave Garrow the greatest, like, encouraging speech, going, Garrow, you need to go out there and prove you're a leader and get everyone together so we can raid the final boss's lair and save the day. 
and he rode spectacularly. So Garo became this like really cool, over the top like badass leader who got all these people. This like one soldier guy managed to round up all these people, and they went for a fight. It was glorious. And then of course because it's Lloyd, he dies at the end because like I can't make everything happy. Of course. But not. it was it just it just one and like even today I still remember that NPC and go you know what I wish I could have whatever it was. That made me think of Garo and just how incredible that character was and how helpful he was. Yeah, I mean, Having an NPC just help people for once actually turned up better than I thought. I mean, it's, it seems to me like we're, we're sort of combining like the most memorable and like the favorite recurring NPCs here. I mean, for, for myself, in terms of like games I've run, one of my favorite and sort of recurring NPCs is still I ran a game of, I mean, pretty few years ago now ran a game of Numenera that had Jason, Matthew and Ambrose playing in it. And you get sort of like a you get like a random like background role that gives you some like random flavour for your character in Numenera. And I think it was Matthew's character randomly rolled that his like uncle owned a theatre in like the town where they were. So when they went in I was just like, alright, I've got no idea to these NPCs. So I just made him like this really like flamboyant guy who thought he was like who thought he was like a real sort of theatrical sort but had like appalling taste in clothes so he wore like a like a day glow yellow suit and he had this like really sort of garish like theater where they put on all this sort of grand guignol style stuff and literally like it didn't matter what was going on in the game like this they're, they're like oh we're finding out that like the world's not really the world and we're actually clones of like other people and stuff like that but literally like, every session that there'd be some point where someone would be like why don't we go to the theater and see what your uncle's up to <laughs> <laughs> just because they were like, oh, we like the NPC, let's like, start going to interact with him for a bit. And that was one of like my favourites in my games. In terms of like favourites in other games, certainly for like, the games that you two have run that I've played in, I think for, for yourself, Lloyd, it's got to be um, Princess Danimede in that Conan game. Just like tr trying to get that woman like married off to someone. And then like then like a, a father like turned up at the end and he was like, oh, I'm like, I'm like old Conan. But uh, uh, and she she's not going to marry someone. We're like you best believe. After all this, she's marrying somebody. <laughs> give give a fuck what you say, old Conan. She's marrying somebody. <laughs> we, we've spent too many sessions trying to like pull her ass out of the fire to not this wedding go ahead. You uh, know the best part about that game, right? Was that you only spent like four sessions. Dan had spent eight trying to get this woman married. <laughs> Yeah, so, so I love Princess Danimede and all of that sort of vibe. And for the, for the games that I've played in that Johannes has run, it's got to be Tombstone out of your, your recent vampire game. Just because, just like, he's it, just like, I mean, I can't remember if he's a Zimacier or a Noz. I think he's a Noz. Nosferatu. Yeah, and, and he's just some, like, stony, grey-faced guy who, who talks like this whenever he talks. And it's just like, the, the, the number of times, he, and he's like proper deadpan, he's, he plays with no sense of humour. But like the amount of times like crazy stuff's been going on, and he's just like turned up, and he's like, he's almost like the straight man to whatever like craziness is like going on. And there's been several points of the game where like, there's been like, oh, like your phone's going off, and I'm like, I fucking hope it's Tombstone on the phone. Just like, hello, I'm just calling to find out what mad shit you're up to. <laughs> and yeah, I, I love, for saying that character is basically like a gravelly voice, and he's like a straight man. L love that guy as an NPC man. C could could not have enough Tombstone in like B20 games. Man. Yeah, Tombstone is fun. It's probably my like favorite NPC to play in that game. Um, speaking of most memorable NPCs, I'm, I've been trying to rack my brain. Um, <clears throat> and uh, one that came to mind was 
uh, Andrew Knapp's uh, droid butler in the FFG Star Wars game that we played, the Heart of Darkness, the original Heart of Darkness crew. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that was uh, quite the character. The the usual uh, sort of like stereotypical like British uh, Steve Harper uh but like hates reality, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, sort of uh, subdued robot butler. That, that was uh, a lot of fun. How about in games you've run? Sorry? How about in games you've, you've run yourself? Um, <clears throat> I was thinking on, on those, and I think my favorite recurring NPC comes from my uh, Tremulous game, where I, um, I had a character who started as an author, and then we, we played uh, like a dozen sessions, and then we sort of like switched from season one, so to speak, to season two. Yeah. And uh, I, I decided that people could either like swap playbooks uh, as they wanted, and they could either uh, like pick an additional thing from their playbooks or pick a thing from another playbook if they wanted to. So it's sort of like advancement thing because there's no real actual advancement rules in Tremulous because you die. <laughs> yeah. In, in, yeah, legit. In, in Mythos games. Um, so uh, the author transitioned into Psychic. And as a Psychic, as you know, because you played uh, mm -hmm. your Psychic in a recent game, uh, you can have a butler type figure. Oh, yeah, amazing. And, uh, <laughs> the, the Psychic choose. Uh, chose to to have a, a butler, uh, and one of the you you chose Verdigree, but yeah. my uh, psychic had uh, Chauncey. Oh yeah. So Chauncey, Chauncey was a gentleman butler, and um, I didn't really have any grand plan for him to start off with. I was just having my like gentlemanly fun with him because he was obviously always attending the psychic, so he was always around. And um, one of the other characters started like to like due to uh certain consequences in the game they started like heavily going into uh the dark arts so to speak and then they researched some stuff in order to contact the actual devil and i was like well uh how do i like do i just do the whole like oh and then there's this guy with the horns no uh i i had the whole like research stuff where the the other character went through, did the thing, sacrificed as you do when you try to contact the devil. Then you go to the crossroads because that's where the devil is, right? Uh, and uh, the other character is, is waiting at the crossroads, and I just go, well, uh, we're going all in. So I'm gonna have Chauncey just walk up and go, what? <laughs> 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 what? What? <laughs> what? What did you want? And it was uh, a fair bit of fun after that because everyone. Was, Oh shit! <laughs> he's he's been actually he's the devil, and he's been here all this time with us. So Chauncey became a, a fairly big character from that point on. Nice, nice. Okay, I, I think we've pretty much answered questions four and five. Does anyone else got anything uh, to, to say? No, we haven't. I have one more NPC to add. Go go um, go on, then, Lloyd. Break it down for us. My recurring NPC is the Fat Man. He doesn't have a name. I keep telling you, Lloyd. My name's John. Stop. It's not you, John. He doesn't have a name. He doesn't have a. He doesn't have a purpose. But in every other scene that involves other people, he'll be running around chasing something, either food 
or a woman or a guy, depending on my preferences, going. Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't speak. He doesn't do anything else. He just does that. It's every like every game I run. Doesn't matter what game it is. If there is a party going on, there's gonna be a fat man chasing up the food or something going, <laughs> and that's it. That's the embassy. Okay, man. Sweet. Okay, so I think we're pretty much on to week two now. So, question six is how can players make a world seem real? What do you guys think? Hannes, you want to go first or should I? Well, I can take a stab at it. Uh... I think it's going to depend largely on the game uh, and what you as a, as a player of said game are able to do with the tools that you have. But uh, one of the like, general bits of advice, which is uh, sort of, well, I, I don't want to say given, but uh, like treat stuff that happens in the game with the severity that is uh, aligned with what you're trying to do as a group with the game. So if, if it's a, a sort of moody, noir type deal, maybe don't go for the, the jokes all the time, uh, unless they're the sort of like sarcastic, I know the world is going to shit, but whatever uh, type of uh, action. And um, well, you can add details as a player into the game. Uh, some groups might have different sort of dynamics for that, but at least in, in the way that I'm used to playing now, it's uh, most games, the creation of the setting and the world is at least to some degree shared between everyone who's playing. So you can add to the world, thereby making it re more real by inputting stuff from uh, customs, uh, items in the world, and um, yeah, that sort of thing. There's, there's a lot I could ramble on about this. But... Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think I agree with that. I mean, the, the, my answer for how can players make a world seem real is obviously we, we know that the, the gems sort of invest a lot in like creating and running worlds even if it's a pre-designed campaign setting they still put a lot in i think when you've got players who are also sort of like investing effort in their characters that shows especially if they're asking questions about the world or like you say they're adding details themselves that additional effort really makes the world seem real it's the difference between having someone turn up and say like oh we're I've got a character who comes from this village over there. He was he was raised in a poor family and he went away to sea to try and seek his fortune, got injured, came back to his hometown, looked after his sick mother for a bit, etc., etc. Then having someone just roll up and be like, oh, I'm playing a, a third-level fighter. I actually have a slightly simpler version of this. If you okay. want to make players seem... A, if what the players want to make a world seem real, pay attention. The most simplest way you can do it in the world is simply by taking notes. If you meet an NPC and then an NPC comes back and you say the NPC's name and you remember the interaction you had with the NPC, eventually the world will build around you. A GM can yeah. only work so much and your backstories are great and they're for the that's what the main world for real, but it might not always come to play, especially in like a three three game session or something like that where you're not gonna have to go back and see your mom and dad. 
But if you if all you do is just remember the NPC's name or just take notes, every time you come back to reference that note and remember that person, the world is gonna build more and more. Soon you come to remember come to expect things from the NPCs you meet and the places you go. Because you've been there before. You remember what they were like. Memory mm-hmm. starts to build familiarity and then eventually it will just dive right down to nostalgia. And then you start just turning up and see a lot of people. It's fantastic. And yeah, that's how I would say you would make the world seem real. What do you think, Johannes, while we quietly talk because John is distracted? <laughs> I think you're uh, right on the money there. And I think it's, uh, it's a continuation of the, of the same sort of thought, maybe coming from a different direction uh, of, of like adding stuff to the world that I was talking about. Because at the end of the day, nothing exists except the things that you're talking about at the game. Yeah. Um, if, if you can uh, recall the context uh, for, the, for the stuff that you're talking about, uh, it's, it's real. It's more real. <laughs> the more stuff that you can remember and talk about, the more real it is. That's it. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of sort of like making notes as a player. I mean, because most of the games I play are online, I've normally got like a, a notepad window open and I just jot things down as we're playing the game. And it's not like massive sort of like paragraphs of like notes. It's just like odd little things to like remind me of stuff. So like if I meet an NPC and I'm like, all oh, right, okay, uh, he, he, he talks in like a low gravelly voice and he's always looking for like a dodgy deal, always looking to like sell something shady. I'll note that down so like when he turns up again, as you say, Lloyd, you can be like, all right, I know what this guy's deal is, and you can react to him as though he's like a real person, other than rather than having to be like, oh, GM, have we like met this guy before? Uh, oh, what is it? What does this guy look like? The thing I hate the most is when I make an NPC and the players can't remember the NPC's name, uh, or even like who they are. Drives me I'll, I'll raise you one. Um, I always have one NPC where they sort of remember the shape or the sound of the name, and then it turns into like a, a joke. Like if, <laughs> if, you, if you have even like the slightest uh, tinge of like a, some sort of exotic name there, they'll forget about that. And then they just go like, John, what's his face? <laughs> oh yeah, that guy, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah and and then the, hate you guys. the nickname that they came up with replaces in their like memory the, the stuff that is real uh that name gets crossed over the original one and the the fucking nickname that they came up which is usually a joke um uh, gets put in it's so that's that's happened to me almost in every but i've, I've got back i can see why that'd be frustrating but uh it, it does sound like something that might happen in real life you know like how many times have you like met someone once or twice and you're like oh what's his name and like if you if they had some like outstanding characteristic, you'd be like, "Oh, you know, um, that guy with the moustache," you know, and you, you you describe them like that, and that becomes like how you describe them if you can't remember the name. So I do think that sort of in its own way is still making the world seem more real because you're still sort of like, I might not remember his name, but I remember the NPC, and I'm still sort of reacting to what he was, even if I can't remember his name. Yeah, it's it's more uh, about. I guess it's just a, like a personal point of annoyance for me. It's like, no, it's it's this. I said it. I've said it so many times. <laughs> Can you please write it down? That's it. 
I mean, I, I don't think that's one of the, the handy things in the games we've been running, like using Roll20 recently. So I know both you and myself have sort of like put the like the NPC notes up. So, and it's like, even if you make notes like I do, there's always like the odd bits and pieces you miss out. So having like a sort of handy list of like NPCs, you can look at the name, and as once you've got the name, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's like I've been met here, and it, it starts you remembering like the other things. And it's like, if I do forget someone, I could, like playing in your V20 game, I can quickly look at the list and then go, oh yeah, it's um, it's Bishop Santiago or whatever, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. crack on with it, rather than having to like, stop you and say, oh, what's that guy called who's yeah. like one of the bishops? Yeah, what's the, the bishop? Like, you know, the important guy? <laughs> yeah, you know, that, 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 that woman who trained me on the path of enlightenment, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what's like, that? Face. <laughs> yeah. As, as if I'd ever forget Bishop Kinley's name. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think we've answered that question. So question seven is, how can a GM make the stakes in a game important? I've got okay, a... Take this one? Oh, yeah, no, sure. Got... I, I did the first one first. You take this one next. Go on then. Okay, so uh, again, uh, I have several answers. The most simple one being, make it personal. Uh, and that like can be detailed in any way you wish. And one of the simplest ways is to, well, depends on the game, but usually there's stuff on the character sheets that you can use and make the game about that. And that, like, in one fell swoop, your game is is all uh, about <laughs> important stakes because it's, it's all about the characters. I like, have ending, a... ending, ending the world plots are impersonal to the extreme. And... Uh, I don't think they. I think I think it's at this point in time, with the sort of media saturation that we've all experienced in our lives, whenever you go like, oh, there's a meteor coming to Earth, or oh, like Satan is loose on the Earth and he's going to destroy it, people just roll their eyes and go, like, oh fuck yeah, I guess I I going I need to get my sword and get to work. I I have um I have a slightly awesome like slightly awesome just as good idea with that is if making making the stakes personal doesn't work for you make the stakes be a consequence of the players fuck ups if the yeah. players have made some kind of mistake or even a good thing and that leads to the stakes raising they'll be invested because they'll go no we were responsible for that we should clear it out why because we're player characters it's a natural setting player characters go in. Some player characters will be like, well, I don't understand why you're going to go rescue that woman that's drowning. I, I don't want <laughs> to they won't, they, won't, they, won't, they, won't, they, won't, they won't do that. They'll just leave that. It's fine. But a lot of players will be like, no, this is my fault. I started this. I should mm-hmm. finish it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... Really, like, it's kind of a cool way to do it. Go on. No, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think one of the, the things that always sort of like, to go back to that previous question about making the world seem real... And also, how do you make the stakes important? It's having consequences for things, whether that's stuff the M- stuff the PCs have done, stuff NPCs have done, stuff the PCs haven't done, maybe. If nothing ever has any consequences, then none of the stakes will seem important. It's like um, it's like if you're watching like um, a, a sitcom or like a, like like the original Star Trek or something like that they can have whatever happens during an episode happens but you know at the start of the next episode all's going to be right with the world and everything's going to be back to where it was so if you have a game like that 
which, yeah, that, that can be absolutely fine. But if you have a game like that, the stakes won't seem as important. Whereas if you know that, like, stuff is going to change and there are going to be consequences to things that happen, it not only makes the world seem real, but it also makes the stakes seem important. Because if you're like, oh, well, if you know that, well, if you let this, like, undead army conquer the land, there's, there's no, like, last-minute save. There's no, like, there's no, like, God in the machine coming down to, like, sort it out. Then you think, oh, well we best get involved because otherwise this undead army is going to take over this country or whatever yeah i think i think we got that one guys i think we uh -huh. all agree on this one. It's nice okay so question eight is how can we get more people playing i think lloyd is uh, no i think it's a john question john john run it go john Okay, how can we get more people playing? I mean, I think as with all things, the best way is to lead by example. So we know now, and we know from what we've seen in the social media and stuff like that, that there are more people who are watching games as entertainment. And now I'm not saying that everyone needs to be running like a, a super slick like production, like Critical Role or anything like that. But if at the end of the game, if people see you running good games, and other people enjoying themselves, they are more likely to want to get involved because you're setting the bar sort of fairly high. And it's not a case of saying, like, oh, well, we're going to run a game that's like better than everyone else's game. It's a case of like saying, right, this is us running the best game we can so that we can have as much fun as we can. And I think it's obvious when you watch a game if people are enjoying it. And I think if you see people enjoying a game, you're more likely to want to play a similar thing yourself so we might be on this question for a while because I'm, i have a few questions about it so it goes how to get more people playing most of the time that it says having more people playing it involves them basically seeing you playing and i'm like that's great but how do you get to the point where people will start actually want to watch you play we know a lot of people a lot of people like watch vertical role and stuff like that but how do, how do you get to get to that point where they start watching people how to get them interested enough to care what what do we go for that? That's the real question. I I like to have answered if I could. It, it is difficult, and I mean, um, I I think this is one of the unfortunate things about um, there not being quite as many game shops as there used to be, because I, I do th and I certainly know from myself that um, one of my first exposures was like seeing my local game shop and going, like, oh, what's going on in there, and then I go having a bit of a browse around. Whereas obviously there's many advantages to like there being more internet shopping and stuff like that now. But I do think that with there sort of being less uh, local gaming stores, there's, there's maybe a bit more of a disconnect. Now people aren't as likely to sort of like just wander past. I mean, if, you, if you're browsing on the internet and you just see a random role-playing book and you've got no interest in role-playing or you've no experience of it, you're probably less likely to go like, oh, I'll buy that just on the off chance. Whereas if you're like wandering past a, a game shop and you see some people gaming, you see the books in there, you see all the like the, the board games and whatever, you I think you're more likely to just like stick your head in, even if you don't buy anything, just to like get you over that sort of initial sort of stepping stone. True. I, that. I think there's some amount of and this isn't like the silver bullet for this thing, but there's some like bleed that's occurring in different sorts of gaming circles uh what with the the whole I, I think like critical role is in such a spotlight when it comes to this right now 
they are currently the most visible thing, I think. Um, <clears throat> and uh, well, for example, the work that Matthew Mercer and the rest of the voice actors that play on that <laughs> on that game, uh, they, at least Matthew, uh, brings in probably quite a lot because of his collaborations with the people who make the games that he voice acts for. Recent example being uh, Pillars of Eternity 2. So Matthew does uh, several voices for that video game. And the people who make that video game have made specific uh, critical role content for that video game. So you get more exposure to people who already play these sort of computer role playing games. Uh, when you insert like critical role stuff into those games, even if it's just like a voice pack for a character or whatever, or like some graphics that you could like make a character look like a critical role character. Uh, I think at least that's that's one way it's sort of like the the exposure is being bled into like different gaming demographics. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think another way of sort of getting more people to play is when you do get sort of like newer people coming to the game is obviously as well as trying to make sure they have a, as much fun as possible is sort of like accepting the fact that when someone first comes to play an rpg they're not going to have all the rules down that they're going to get things wrong they're maybe going to slip out of character and stuff like that basically they're not going to be perfect when they play the first game and who is perfect when they play the when they play role-playing games and don't say you are lloyd before you say anything Oh, so I think, like I say, you've just when you get trying to actively like bring new people in, and then accepting the fact that it's going to take them a while to get into the sort of swing of things, and not sort of like demonising or or criticising too much for that. I mean, yeah, if they say to you, "Well, like, how can I like step up my game or whatever?" Yeah, give them advice. That's great, but it should be like giving them advice, not sort of saying like, "Oh, I'm telling you this because you're shit at role playing." I I feel our community, as nice as it is, is a bit tough to get into in the first place if you don't know someone already in it. And I think that's the real thing, is that you have to know someone. You can't just you can't just go, well, I don't know about role-playing games, I'm going to jump. I mean, you can, that's how I did it. But it's a lot easier for a lot of people. Tons of people will just be like, I know someone who does this. I want to test it out and go there. And then they'll want to invest in more. So whenever we're trying to tell people about the hobby, we've got to make sure we're a bit more... A bit like you say, a bit more polite, and not just we don't know if you belong here. Also, we really should not be giving people bullshit to prove whether they're a real gamer or not. Like, oh well, are you are you really a D and D player? How long have you played D and D? Have you played first edition? What well, doesn't make you a real D and D person? Oh, do you only play story games? Oh well, I guess you're not really counting. Oh, do you only play OSR? More like OS bore, am I right? Like you can't. We can't do that. Also, by the way, OSR, you still suck. Uh, we can't do that in any shape or form <laughs> to keep this up. Like, Shots fired. We've got, to, like, like OSR is actually really inviting to most people. Uh, like, and the way they go through story games are also really inviting, but all, like, the, the way they do, like, they're all pretty much, all of them are really inviting, but they don't, they all require you to know someone already in it. If you come in blank, it's always that tiny bit of friction you have to go through where you get gatekept. Gatekeeping is a massive problem, my hobby. And if you got rid of that, a lot more people get in there. 
we somehow have this idea that because it was not cool in the, in those days, we should keep it not cool just for us. And I'm like, no, no, we're not responsible for making other people like the hobby. We're not. But at the very least, we shouldn't throw them away. Like, you know, bring them in. Unless they're douchebags, uh -huh. then kick them the fuck out. Okay, so has anyone got anything more to say on how can we get more people playing? <clears throat> just play games. And preferably with new people every once in a while. Mm -hmm. I know that I certainly could use some of that advice. I tend to get attached to the same kinds of groups. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I think it's a, a comfort thing, isn't it? If you find like, because obviously the you, if you find a group of people who like suit your particular style of gaming, who you get on with, you tend to sort of like gravitate naturally towards them because you feel comfortable and you know you're going to get a good gaming experience with them. But I agree with you. I mean, I need to do that a bit more myself, sort of get in with like role playing with some newer people and running games for some newer people and i think that's potentially one of the reasons why i've been enjoying um doing the games on demand so much with yourself lloyd a uk yeah. games expo because it's random people coming up who you've probably never gamed with before or like maybe once or twice or whatever and then just like running a game for them and like having to adapt on the fly to like new people I think you're absolutely right. Like that's, I, you know, that's kind of why I wanted to game them in the first place. It started off as a GM for beginner thing, where we invited people who'd never played games before to try it out, and it's grown into games on demand. But my whole idea is that, hey, look, if you've never played a game before, but you happen to be at UK Game Expo, just turn up, just turn up and do it. I'm trying, I'm trying to make people like the hobby. Yeah, I mean, and I'm I, giving them as often as I can. I quite, I quite like the thing with games on demand where like the the GMs all have like four or five games like a group of players will just turn up and you're like right this is what i've got what do you fancy and so i know when i i ended up running um dressed and accelerated a couple of times because people were just like oh i've not tried it before but like you know i like a bit of urban fantasy like in my books sounds cool let's give it a go and it's all it's also a good opportunity for like the players to try something new as well as for the games master to try running a game for new people Right. Well, All right, I think I think we did it, guys. Nice. Yeah. Question nine: How has a game surprised you? Now I'm a bitter, twisted, and jaded old man, obviously. <laughs> so I'm going to turn over to you, young, sprightly fellows, to talk about how games have surprised you. John, you're like only like three years older than me. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but look at how like how vibrant and like active and excited about things you get. Whereas I'm like sat in a corner like smoking my pipe with a bag of Werther's original, talking about how like Hovis was better in the good old days. Johannes, you got this one, or do you want me to start? <sighs> well, if you <clears throat> if you have something to go on, you can start because I'm still bridging up some thoughts. Okay, on I'll tell you how a game surprised me because I'll talk about Lady Blackbird, my favorite subject. So before I played Lady Blackbird, I didn't really understand the whole idea of just like like free form role play. I was like, well, no, you gotta get a get a story, gotta write it down, gotta have a book, gotta make sure you know the plot's going, gotta get that railroad up in there. Whoa! And then a friend of mine was like, Lloyd, try Lady Blackbird, really cool. I'm like, this game sounds dumb. I don't want to talk about it. Give it a shot. And I gave it a shot. And I remember specifically the moment it was where we were playing the game. We'd reached, we'd we'd, we'd done the first bit. I turned. I there was called. They they had just got to Haven. They're not, they're not they were in they were in the like they were in the hand of sorrow and one of them made a score and they got they got it correct and i looked at the, the thing they had and the thing didn't have anything for oh you've sabotaged the, the hand of sorrow there's nothing there so i looked up at the, the player i looked down i looked at the player and i went um 
what would you like to happen? Question mark. And it went, I turned the ship upside down. And I was like, okay. The ship starts turning upside down. At which point I was like, wait, I don't, I don't have to follow a plot line. I can just go with the flow. This is Lady Blackbird. There's nothing, there's not, there's no plot. I, so I actually like, I, I had a notebook with what I written the plot to be in. And I picked up the notebook and I put it down on the table and I moved it away from me and went, you know what? I'm going to try and do this free form. And that was a three day session, which we played through the entire Lady Blackbird and then went all the way to find you at Flint and came all the way back to our home. And I had a big spectacular finale and it was the greatest game I'd ever run in my life. And I was like, I understand now I get it. I get, I don't have to prepare for everything. So that's how a game surprised me. It taught me that you don't have to have the railroad, Lloyd. You could just go with the flow, and it works. <clears throat> Come on, Johannes. There's got to be some time when a game surprised you. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's not that they haven't. Yeah, it's just... Uh, I think for the most part... Well, the easiest thing for me to go after would be quite similar to yours. So <clears throat> when I got into Powered by the Apocalypse games and, and Burning Wheel, um, my understanding of, of games <laughs> and their, their structure uh, changed quite a bit. Once I got those uh, two designs to click uh, in my head. So uh, a, a shift from this sort of, I have X amount of material prepared to, I have these characters in my game and there's these things that they can do that we can all quite easily even springboard off and create uh, action in the game. I think that that shift uh, when it, I, I can't really point uh, the out the time or like place in the timeline when when that happened, but that's uh, a, a thing that I well I, I couldn't have expected it because I <laughs> all, all I knew before was uh, something different. Yeah, I mean I, I've got mine's a sort of fairly similar one. It was the first time I played Dungeon World, well first time I ran Dungeon World, and that as I'm sure you guys know the. So the way Dungeon World suggests you do like your first like introductory session is you come up with like a basic sort of background saying like oh y your characters have all grown up in the same village there's this going on nearby and it's ruled by this person and the way it suggests you sort of fill that in is you ask the players questions so one of the players that like, goes oh I want to play an elf and you're like so you turn to them instead of going like, oh, well, the, the elves are here, they do this, here's a huge handout on the elves. You say to them, you say, oh, well, are, are there many elves near this village? And you ask them a series of questions which you use to fill in that session. And I'm not saying that I'd do that for every game, but like yourself, Johannes, sort of reading that for the first time, I was like, oh, right, so I don't have to like 100% plot out absolutely everything. And I think the thing i tweak most in games is sort of like the balance between my prep and sort of how much improvised stuff i do i'm always trying to hit that sort of like sweet spot where you've got enough prep that if the players like ask you something you can represent the world consistently but you've not got it locked down so much that if they come up with like a cool idea or suggest something to include in it you're like 
oh no we can't do that because it conflicts with this you've still got a flexibility that you can add extra stuff and expand on your world background okay question number 10 indeed how has gaming changed you i know more white people <laughs> i mean does that count that counts right guys to, to, be, to be fair there's a lot of us about man so <laughs> if i was to say how gaming has changed me it's probably how i view stories nowadays i used to always like a book with like just big ass action scenes and stuff like that but gaming has really taught me that sometimes personal stories about just a dude just trying to find his daughter that really is where the real fucking genius lies and gaming has changed the way i look at the way people tell stories All the books i used to read back in the day they're not as exciting to me anymore because they used to be just full of like dumb crap and like all the videos go through. But I'm like, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not that kind of person anymore. I've learned that maybe, maybe telling smaller, easier to read and nice stories are more important. Also, I work in the gaming industry, so I guess technically that's changed me too. I'll give it that too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for myself, it was like, so before I started role playing, I sort of came from like a war gaming background. So obviously the war gaming, it's all about rolling those dice and like moving your figures across the map and stuff like that. And that was pretty much what gaming was for me. So role-playing was the sort of the thought that there could be more than just like combat and rolling dice. And don't get me wrong, I still love like a high-action combat in a game. That's grand. But some of the more memorable moments have been like the interactions with people and the stuff that goes on between the combats. So I think that's how gaming has sort of changed me. It got me to consider that there's other elements within gaming that are if not more important, as important as like the combat and the dice rolling. Come on, Johannes, so, do it. Break it down. I think... The, um, the thing that's at least more, most important to me, uh, as far as being changed by gaming, is probably... Like, when you spend such time in, albeit fictional, uh, shoes of other people, uh, I think you gain quite a lot of perspective uh, and maybe you gain a little bit of social savvy <laughs> in, in, in between the the gratuitous violence and mass murder. Maybe maybe there is a little bit of uh, like social intelligence to be gained. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think certainly for myself, uh, I've become more comfortable with like speaking with people who maybe I don't know that well or I've just sort of met in passing. Whereas certainly when I was younger, I wouldn't have been like confident enough to like speak to people or just like have a general conversation with people I didn't know. Whereas I think gaming has made that sort of social interaction a little bit easier for me. Uh -huh. Yeah, and just, I, I think part of it for me as well is because you spend time in all these worlds, meeting all these people, killing all of them, albeit, but um, <laughs> it you, I would like to think that you have so many opportunities to see different things, different ways of life, uh, 
in even in a game. Uh, you encounter different cultures, different species that do things differently, and it doesn't uh, always have to be something that ends in violence. But just encountering stuff that's different from what you encounter in life uh, day in, day out, I think that's, that's quite an important thing in, in RPGs, and I don't think it gets um, highlighted all that much. And I, I think, at least for me, it's, it's a... Uh, a treasure in gaming. Uh, it broadens people's minds, I like to think. Same thing with reading. You you will have to be a very special person not to evolve in some way if you read a lot. That's also fair. Okay, anyone got anything else on question 10? Nope, we good. Okay, qu question 11. Wildest character name? Uh. <laughs> Now, I'm just going to say, like, flat out that, like, I don't really have an answer for this because I just cheat when it comes to character names. I fire up that random character name generator and, yeah, I, just, uh, and, and I just blast out about, like, 80 of them suckers and then I, like, mix a few together until I get something I like. Although, having said that, I, I do like, as we were saying with, like, Tremulous, I like the fact it gives you some sample names and you pick them. So I enjoy playing a character called December Green in your last game, mm -hmm. which, which I loved. Uh, I can't remember what my um, what my chef character was called in the game before. No, that that was my manservant for my psyche. Oh, yeah. um, it was something vaguely French sounding. Yeah, chowder something. Oh yeah, and I'm saying it's pronounced chowder. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I normally go for the random character name generators, but I do like games like the use power of the apocalypse, where they give you a selection of names and you can like. They're normally sort of crazy, but like in-character sort of names. So Tremulous has sort of very Lovecraftian sounding names. Uh, Dungeon World has like your typical sort of like D&D-esque like fantasy names. So I like seeing what other people think are like suitable names for settings. How about yourself, Lloyd? I cannot play this game. I'm sorry, guys. My names are boring. I'm very <laughs> boring at names. Because I, too, use a generator and put it down. I don't know what name I came up with was a superhero called The Splash. All he could do was make people wet. That was literally <laughs> his actual power. He was, always, he was a beacon. It was like, I'm, I'm not very powerful. Guys, I just can make water. It's not really my job. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, was, that was it. That was, that was the wildest character name I've come up with. I'm sorry. I, I can't play this one. I'm, I'm out. I'll tag you in, Joanna's. <laughs> All right, brother. Um, so I don't think, like, wildest is a, an interesting adjective because I don't, I would have maybe used different. <laughs> one, but uh, <laughs> I I spend a lot of time uh, with names because I like them. Uh, I like to, as as you guys do, I like to have like a chunk of material, and then I like to tinker with it until it sounds sounds just right for me. Um, but um, if we keep with the spirit of the question, wildest character name, uh, I play, uh, I ran uh, um, an Apocalypse World game where I ha I, I made an NPC called Fuck. It, it, it was just fuck, and uh, that's that's the story. I don't think there's much to this question. <laughs> uh, okay, so so how about we slide on to question twelve, which is the wildest character concept. For a One Piece game, I made a chef that wanted to cook the world. Okay. Oh man, n n never mind that. What about you in um? In that um, fake game that Whitey ran, where you're playing the guy who was always eating like the chicken legs. 
Oh man, that was my favorite character. I played a samurai who was just really fat and was constantly eating, and he just wanted to show off all the other ones. He came from a noble family. Oh, that was, the, that was I, I missed that character. That was a good character. His whole idea was that he he's a big fat guy, so he knows to use this giant bow. But he loves to eat, so all he does is eat, even constantly on a mission. And anything he gets food, he smells and goes for it. But he's also the leader of a clan. So whenever a challenge comes up, he has to step forward like he can take it. I like playing fat characters who kick ass. I, I don't know why. Well, yeah. I don't know why. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I liked, I enjoyed my own sort of like angsty sort of like samurai character in that game. And again, that, that was partly because like we were playing a sort of a samurai sort of fake game, as you said. We all sort of like knew some of the background material it was being based on. We were all sort of like trying to hit those sort of uh, iconic concepts that you get. So obviously we had yours who was like the good natured guy who was like strong, likes his food, sort of laughs a lot. He's quite bellicose, he's good, but he's always up for a challenge. Whereas you had like my character it was like, oh, my village was like killed by like bandits and all my family are dead. I've got like the sort of Zuko like scar down one side of my face, etc. All, all very sort of stereotypical and like iconic sort of like characters in that game. And that's one thing I really do enjoy. And again, it comes back to things like tremulous and like horror games and stuff like that. If you're playing a game where there's like genre conventions in order to like make the games sort of come alive you have to really embrace those like conventions so it's like if you're playing like a, a cthulhu-esque game and something weird goes off there's no you know as a as a player that the best thing you can do is just stay where you are don't read any books if there's a weird sound don't go and investigate just keep, keep your eyes shut hum until it goes away but yeah. that doesn't result in a fun game. You really have to just like okay. it's like if you see a horror film and like you're like shouting at the screen because they go like, "Arm oh, and sp let, let's split up." You go and look in the basement and you're like, "Why are you doing that? You're gonna die." But if you're playing like a role-playing game and it's like that sort of game, you have to just like embrace those conventions and like go with it, and that makes the world seem not more real, but it makes it seem more vibrant, and it also brings these sort of like these character concepts out and sort of like enhances them because they feel like they belong in that game mm -hmm. and it generates fun yeah okay, that's that's why you play uh mythos <laughs> okay and it, should we skip along to the next one so, so john john i love you but like that's the 30 minutes each section you know this now right i mean your best bet might be to split this up into five. Well, it depends how long you've got, man. I'm up for powering through. Oh, my God. So that's it for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions for things you'd like to see in the podcast in future, please either email them to reddicediaries at gmail.com or drop me a voicemail at Anchor. Until I see you next time, whenever you're playing, take care and enjoy yourselves. Mm -hmm.